welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show, and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. Now, on the topic of Crop Tech, there are just a few days to go until this year's event, which celebrates its 10th anniversary of technical arable farming. You can register for a free ticket to the event, which takes place on the 23rd and 24th of November at the East of England Showground in Peterborough by visiting croptechshow.com. The theme for this year's event is very topical. It's farming in a changing climate, controlling costs, cultivating resilience. And the seminar programme reflects this in exploring topics including environmental regulation, data, disease control, and of course, natural capital opportunities, which we're covering in today's episode. Are you looking to offset the loss of BPS? Be paid for environmental work you're already doing? Or maybe you just want to escape the grasps of the RPA? More and more private businesses are now looking to offset their environmental footprint. And with new laws on enhancing biodiversity for housing developers, there are some really interesting opportunities emerging for land managers to make some extra cash. However, trading natural capital is a fairly new concept and farmers could be tied into contracts with private businesses for more than 30 years. In this episode of Crop It Like It's Hot, we're going to hear from three experts and find out how farmers could tap into this potentially profitable market and answer the question, is trading natural capital all it's cracked up to be? So now for our first guest, he was one of the people campaigning for biodiversity laws to be changed. He was one of the founding members of Natural England, and I can't think of a better person to be giving us the full rundown on BNG. It's Professor David Hill, founder of the Environment Bank. Great to have you on the podcast, David. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have probably heard of biodiversity net gain or biodiversity offsetting before. But for those of them who, you know, they might not quite understand it or maybe they haven't heard the term before, would you mind just giving us um, a brief explanation of what it is? I certainly can. Well, it came about as I'd spent sort of many years trying to design mitigation schemes for developments, realising that they didn't really materialise to very much. Once the planning permission had been granted, the developers often went back to vary a planning permission or a scheme, and they didn't really account for the biodiversity impacts properly, and this has been going on for years and years. So I started to lobby that we should do planning in a different way uh, through biodiversity offsets and getting gains for nature back in 2006 when I set up the Environment Bank. And how it, how it basically worked was that um, by 2021, last November, the idea of biodiversity net gain um, as a concept was mandated into planning law through the uh, enactment of the Environment Bill. So um, we, we, Environment Bank had spent quite a n- number of years doing offsets and net gain on a voluntary basis, but it wasn't until the mandatory regime uh, was announced that it's now really been taken incredibly seriously. And so what it is, is a developer um, measures the um, the impact of the development uh, on before they obviously do the development in order to get a permission. They measure the impact of that development using something called the DEFRA metric. Um, and that's a, that that measures the area of a habitat, its distinctiveness and, and its condition, and it works out the number of biodiversity units in a particular development area. So if you've got a 100 hectare um, area of farmland, for example, on average, that probably has about 360 biodiversity units in it, very, very crudely, and, and that's as, as an average. Um, and then on top of that, the um, the government announced that uh, you, the developer would have to uh, uh, add on at least a 10% uplift uh, as part of the uh, development scheme. So you can imagine that 360 units goes to about 400 units are required. The developer puts all that information into a biodiversity gain plan um, and they have to show with their master plan uh, how much of the of that BNG requirement of 400 units for that, say, 100 hectare um, big housing scheme, they would keep within the development site itself. And they may perhaps get away with 
putting 100 um, units in there, but the other 300 units they would need to secure off-site, not a million miles away, obviously, from where the development's taking place, but in the same planning authority area generally or in the same natural character area. And so what, what happens is that they get a permission on the basis of them delivering that biodiversity net gain uplift um, and that's where we come into play because we we do those calculations but we work with a whole range of people to uh, find landowner sites that we take on under lease uh, that we then sell credits from to the developers to make them compliant with the new law okay and then that's where obviously farmers come in because um 10 percent of you know, an area that would cost a lot more on development land, I'm assuming, than it would on farmland. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so one of the one of the real values and benefits of, of this is that the developer doesn't need to sacrifice net developable area, uh, which is extremely uh, valuable, uh, and their revenues, of course, if they if they're locking the land down themselves for biodiversity they can't build the houses or the commercial warehousing or the infrastructure uh, sites that they 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 need to uh, which means they have to go and find new other additional sites to meet their own viability targets so this is a really good way of them and and, and uh, j- just to sort of uh, make a note on this that um I was really passionate that the farmer landowning community could actually get involved in this as a means of, a gen- of generating another revenue stream, particularly important at the moment with the phasing away of the uh, basic payment scheme from a farm subsidy. And, um, you know, what we don't uh, want to be doing is buying lots of land, not least because land very rarely comes on the market to do this. And if it does, it's usually in the wrong place. But more importantly, we want farmers and landowners to feel part of the solution and that they can generate revenue from this so it makes nature economically visible and i think by doing that it's the only way we'll start to see nature recovery and biodiversity uh, the dial on those being moved in the right direction yeah i guess that's all part of the kind of rewilding argument with these big corporations buying up farmland so this is a way for you know, farmers and developers to kind of work together. Yes, I mean, I think uh, we, we we started off as brokering uh, the deals before it became mandatory, um, but that's incredibly difficult because of the liabilities that, w- where does the liability sit? So what the Environment Bank does is that we, we have, a, at the moment, we have about 600 or more um, farmers and landowners registered with us and we're processing all of that at the moment to actually make offers to the farmer and landowner um, to take their land under lease and we pay them um, a a rental plus all the habitat management costs which are actually uh, more financially beneficial than say countryside stewardship. We also pay all the habitat creation costs up front um, and and some legal costs so effectively it's a it's a win-win for the farmer landowner and for that relationship we have a very um a really good uh, uh legal agreement with the landowner that is good for the landowner and good for us so everyone knows where we go uh and we we guarantee the payment to the farmer for 30 years so it's a it's a guaranteed income stream and on the basis of that, we, we take all the risk, um, we take all the liability. When we sell the credits from that uplift that we create to the developer, uh, the developer doesn't have any further liability whatsoever. And that's of great value to the developers because if, they, if the developer does it within the boundary of their development site, they still are going to have to register it with government and they're still going to have to guarantee a 30 years of funding for that management of that biodiversity. And the big problem with much of the on-site biodiversity net gain is that it won't be guaranteed in terms of its future because if it's a housing scheme, people want tidiness. They don't want lots of untidy areas. And if there's one thing that biodiversity is, it can be pretty untidy. So so they don't want that. They, they, They want tidiness. Uh, they want good open green space, but that isn't necessarily biodiversity. So the model that we've created enables the developer to off, off, offload their liability effectively, knowing full well that their 
compliance is met and that the biodiversity will be created in these big sites. And the one thing, of course, if you do do this in, within a scheme for development, you'll end up with lots of small, fragmented, disturbed areas. Much better that you actually get a big area of land, you know, up to 100 hectares, 250 acres, that, that we're going to be putting into place and are, in, are doing now, where biodiversity will thrive at scale. Yeah, I guess having an area within a housing estate is all very well, but there's not not a lot of other places for any wildlife to go no, or come and, from. Exactly. And, um, and of course, uh, people don't necessarily, who live outside the housing scheme, go into that housing estate to get their biodiversity fix or their nature fix. You know, I think there's... So there's much there's there's much better ways of delivering biodiversity, and um, I think it's now become a general consensus that whilst there is a bit of rhetoric and, and narrative around well you can't move the nature away from people, but actually it doesn't actually occur as good quality nature conservation or biodiversity. Um, it, people want good green space to walk the dog and let the kids play, etc. But what they what they can't do is have sites where there's no go. Uh, areas so that the biodiversity can so-called thrive and it basically doesn't that's why i set the environment bank up in the first place because the on-site uh, delivery either never got delivered or very quickly got degraded by um, you know, by the use of the development so so i think we've come up with a we've come up with a really good solution that the developers really like and we've we've already got a forward purchase of credits now um, very, very significant forward purchase of credit. So it's going to be working for the developers well. Um, and we've already um, now got the first Habitat banks up and running from which we're selling credit. So we're now, we are now at the phase of um, escalating the creation of these big Habitat bank sites across the country. Okay. And what kind of habitats are we talking here and over what kind of area? Because some, you know, some yeah. farmers might think, oh, I don't want to stick, I don't know, 10 hectares into whatever kind of habitat. Very early days, we were a bit concerned that potentially the farmers, you know, might put a corner of a field in, but that wasn't really going to do anything for us. So our offer is that we start around 10 hectares being the smallest, um, and that is, you know, it's still reasonable, only 25 acres, but it's still not that big. Um, but we go through to over 100 hectares. So our average is probably going to be around 40 hectares or 100 acres, which is quite a big chunk of land. If you think of, I think the average farm in, in, in England is um, not a great deal bigger than 150 acres. So uh, it's it's quite a good scale. Um and but we will go bigger. So I think the one of one that we're looking at at the moment is probably around 500 acres or 200, 200 hectares. So they can be really big. But what we what we've managed to do in the Environment Bank is we've looked at what the development demand is um, in all the England's uh, local planning authorities, looking at their forward plan for 10 years. So we know what the biodiversity credit requirement is across the country and obviously we're focusing at the moment in those areas where the demand is most acute and most um, uh, most most relevant uh, but we will be doing every planning authority area but it means that we we're starting to see how we can start to stitch back the fabric of the countryside and in, and in fact the farmers quite like the idea and so some of the large landed estates can put forward bigger sites but we're not ruling out the smaller farmer who might want to put half the farm in or only a, a few fields in and we're looking at all options but generally 10 hectares is about the minimum but it goes through to um about well over 100 hectares and potentially up to 200 hectares but but i would say one thing is that that we're also going to be supplying for the corporate market rather than just the biodiversity net gain developer market. And so that's why some of these bigger sites are really useful because we can fulfill the sales for biodiversity net gain to the local development, but we can then also sell to corporates. So the corporates get greater value for buying into those schemes as well. And what kind of habitats are um, your landowner customers creating? Yeah, sure. So we and we work with them um, 
day to day. We design all the habitat scheme with them. We don't we don't do it to them, as it were. We work with them and see what they would like to uh, bring forward. Um, and we've been, you know, really in awe of the sort of ideas and interests and passion that the farmers have had towards this. So basically, we're looking at habitats from obviously broadleaf woodland, and it's not, not just that isn't just about planting trees. It's a whole it's a whole um, scheme around. Uh, density of plantation, glades, rides, etc., ground flora. Uh, then we've got wood meadows, we've got um, species-rich grasslands, which are probably one of the most um, prevalent at the moment, um, and then right the way through to wetlands and even rewilded sites. Um, the only issue with rewilded sites is that you never know perfectly well where that habitat type will end up because it can go off in a particular different trajectory. So, so you don't have as much of a management intervention with that. Um, so you don't know at which point it's reaching some form of maturity from which you can gauge how many credits you can sell. So, so for rewilded sites, certainly at the moment, you're only going to get you're going to get a much smaller number of credits than you would get for uh, species-rich grassland or woodland scrub and wood meadow, for example. But that full range of habitat types um, uh, means that we can really start to restore nature at scale. So it's not one particular habitat type. It depends on the suitability of the land, the hydrology, the geology, uh, proximity to other habitat types, proximity to other areas of land cover as well. So all of those things we factor in until we come up with the right scheme for that landowner. Yeah, that's interesting. So would you be able to um, kind of farm alongside that habitat? I'm just thinking, you know, you said about woodland creation, could that be used as some kind of agroforestry or hay yeah. meadows? Would that be allowed to be grazed or cut? Absolutely. And that, that is a fundamental part to it, because in order to achieve the right level of um, biodiversity and in the right and going in the right direction, they will need a management intervention, which is what we pay for. Um, but, but by and large, the farmer would be expected to be able to extensively graze um, or even mob graze at certain times of year. After, for example, if a species was grassland, they could take a hay cut um, and they could sell the hay into a local market or further afield. Um, and then they can aftermath graze it with um, probably best cattle, but also sheep. Cattle tend to do a better job um, in the way that they they graze, and then then what happens is you you end up with a much um, you you end up with a really short sward on the grassland uh, on the on the wildflower meadows, which then enables next spring the wildflowers to grow uh, without being too outcompeted by coarse vigorous grasses because the, the livestock have taken taken that right down. And that's a really important management regime. Similarly, with woodland, you could have um, you could have lower density uh, woodland with grasslands interlinked between it all, um, and you could put um, you could put sheep in there as long as as long as we secured the uh, uh, the area from for, for, for livestock, and that goes with anything, whether it's hedgerows or walls, for example. So, so that's important. And the, the really important thing for us is that farmers are able to maintain the farm regime there but it may not be as as intensive as they might do uh, in, in other parts of the farm but that's a good thing for biodiversity too yeah so how is the progress of the habitat monitored and you know how how are you making sure that that you know this habitat is actually in place and is being managed yeah. in the way that it should be because um well, we'll get onto that in a minute, but the contracts are for quite a long time, aren't they? So, yeah. So the contracts are for thirty years or thirty-three years actually, because there's an initial establishment period as well. And for that period, either every year or at a particular regularity, dependent on what the habitat type is, um, we within our um, within the, within the charges that we make uh, for the credits, we fund all the. Uh, monitoring and reporting of that habitat, um, and we'll, we are using we're looking at, at using a combination of methods from, uh, well, let's say environmental DNA to sample, let's say invertebrate populations that can show the progress of a habitat maturation, if you like, um, to using people on the ground, to using uh, drones and uh, fixed point photography. So there's a whole range of methodologies that we are deploying, uh, and of course. 
having just started with our habitat banks, we're just starting on this process now. So we haven't got any where we've um, had a number of years of monitoring. But the all of that is costed in properly um, and so that we take on the liability of the annual reporting uh, uh, or whatever regularity it is. And we will report back to the planning authority how it's going. We also have a contingency fund so that if the habitat um, that's being that's been created isn't going in the right direction. We have a restorative plan that can put it back on track. Um, and, um, and of course, we, the, the farmer, we don't we say to the farmer, you are not liable for this um, unless they are really negligent. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they would be. But in, if they're doing what we're asking of them to do in partnership with us um, and something happens or there's a, you know, some bad weather events, or whatever it might be, yeah. we go back at our own cost um, and put it right. So the, so the landowner farmer doesn't need to sit there worrying about, oh, well, it's all well and good. I've been paid this, but it could all come back to haunt me if I've got to pay the money back. Well, that's um, almost never likely to happen unless of course they're really negligent and then so far today you know the, the farmers and landowners we've engaged with are, are just so passionate about this they really want to see it work and they want to see it um, as part of their farming operation which is exactly where that's exactly what I wanted to see happen 14 years ago when I set the environment bank up. Yeah that's really good to hear and one thing that we've touched on um is the 30-year or 33-year, you said, contract tie, which is um, that's all part of the um, Environment Act legislation. Have you got any contracts um, that are potentially shorter than that? I know you mentioned that um, you have kind of corporate clients as well rather than just um, developers now. Uh, Obviously, 30 years is a very long time to be tied into something. And especially at the moment, farming is very uncertain. Um, So, yeah, I just wondered if there's any way around that. Well, for for the biodiversity net gain um, contracts, it is 30 years. And it is a challenge for for farmers and landowners because they've been used to five or 10-year agreements and to go for 30 years um, is is a is a bit more of a leap. But actually, over the last 18 months to two years, we've we've seen a, a real interest in doing this because we don't go for the grade one, grade two agricultural land. Um, it's the it's the less the, the potentially less productive arable agricultural land that we we go for. And the farmers have decided that you know. We can actually we can actually put these into another scheme. So it's really like it's farming. You know, we farm crops, we farm livestock, and now we farm nature. And that's really that's really where we've got to be with land management. We can't just have one type of product coming off the land. There will be the real money will be in multiple values coming off the land. Now, in terms of the corporate sector, <clears throat> very often they will not be. They will not have the knowledge to know what their impacts on natural capital are um, sort of outside of a five-year term. So we will probably be looking at shorter-term contracts on the same land parcels, uh, not not obviously where we've already sold credits to the developer, but other areas. And we will parcel up the, um, the, uh, the credit sales in a different way to the corporates. And we're in that process now of, of working that through. Um, and it will be driven a lot by what the corporates want as well. And um, just one thing to say on that is that I think as soon as the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, the TNFD, um, hopefully mandates the need for corporates to measure, disclose and then reduce and then offset their residual impacts on natural capital, as soon as that um happens, I think we will see a really big demand for the sorts of um, uh, credit values that we're generating on land. The corporates themselves are realising that investor pressure is coming down the track before regulatory pressure, and we're already starting to um, gain a lot of interest from corporates, sort of saying, can you help us to um, become nature positive? And on to the final question, then I'll let you go, because I realise I've taken up quite a lot of your time. That's all right. Um, But probably the most important one for a lot of our listeners. Um, 
payments how much is yeah. one unit worth what kind of average you know per hectare i guess would would someone expect to be getting from being a part of one of these schemes well it, they're probably going to be getting sort of between 25 and 40,000 a hectare for the length of the of the um, of the period um, dependent very much on the uh, on the habitat type. So, you know, if it was a wetland, it's much more complex. There are different issues to deal with. You've got to get the hydrology right. It's more, it is more expensive to set up. So you'd be towards the top end of that, or even more than that. Um, uh, but then, of course, we'd be wanting to sell the credits at uh, at a premium for that. Uh, and then the, the lower end, the easier habitats to recreate. Um, you know, something of, of around that. But as I say, it, it differs different sites and it's based on the rental agreement, the management costs uh, that we pay um, and which includes the, obviously the time for, of the, the farmer landowner if he wants to do it himself. Um, often they don't, they want, they want us to do that and that's fine. Um, and then also the, the initial habitat creation costs um, uh, vary dramatically as well, whether it's you're planting a woodland uh, with the ground flora uh, uh, built into that, or a species-rich wildflower meadow, or a wetland. The, 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 the costs are very, very variable, but very generally it's of that order. Um, but, you know, there's no, there's no, this goes back to almost the previous question, there's no one-size-fits-all. So every, every op- opportunity, every um, arrangement that we make uh, is pretty bespoke effectively yeah and those payments are they're ones to rival countryside stewardship really aren't they oh yeah i think we we're pretty sure that they're higher than countryside stewardship and they're for 30 years and um and also they um you know we do all the monitoring and reporting so there's not there's there's no there is no additional hidden cost to the, the landowner farmer and on the price of units, how are they decided? Is that kind of a moving market? Because I'm just thinking if, um, you know, as you said, if there's changes to um, how corporations have to um, yeah. prove their, their environmental credentials, and whether the price is going to shoot up when that happens. and um, I know. suppose, yeah, no, nobody really knows. I think, I suspect that unit prices might increase but at the moment they're based again it's a moving feast because well it's not a moving feast but it's based on uh, where in the where what part of the country you're in what are land prices like um what's the geology what's the hydrology what's the complexity of the habitat that you're going to create and um and the, the credit price basically just reflects that um um you know, there will, there will be up to probably fifty or sixty thousand a unit, depending on what the habitat type is. But you know, there's a, such a massive variation. Okay, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. That was a really good Great. crash course in BNG. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that was all right, Alice. That was good. Now, my next guest today is not only a farmer who is trading natural capital on his farm, but he is also one of the founding members of the Green Farm Collective, which is a nature and carbon investment community set up by a group of like-minded farmers. Really good to have you on the podcast, Michael. Um, Would you mind by just starting um, in giving us a bit of background on you, your farm and maybe your farming system as well? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm from a non-farming background. My parents weren't farmers, um, but I studied agriculture at Newcastle University. Um, and then I've worked in, in various uh, various jobs from, from farm managers to, to even uh, farming farming with my brother in the livestock sector um, and all sort of quite high intensity, um, you know, high input, high output situations. Um, and uh, I then eight years ago uh, got the job here at Church Farm um, as, as a farm manager um, and really my brief was to create a sustainable and profitable business without relying on the rents from uh, root crops and veg crops um, and really the early focus was okay how do I run um, what was then a 600 acre farm how do I run that on my own um, and I started started looking into how I could do that and that's what led me down the led me down the road of the Claydon drill and going to script till so that I could do up 500 acres of arable on my own um, and alongside that 
set up a flock of sheep here on the farm. And it, the whole journey evolved from there, really, um, from seeing how the soils improved under the under the Claydon system, under the strip soil system. Um, and, and I sort of, you know, I've learned an awful lot over the past seven, nearly eight years now um, about soil health uh, and, and, and how I can improve it and how, you know, when soil health is improved, the soils will look after me. Um, so, so here we are, eight years on. Um, we're we're now in a situation where we're we're nearly all zero till, um, growing a diverse range of crops. Um, we're lambing 500 ewes and selling all of our all of our finished lambs going to go into a, a local farm shop um, and and then we've got a fairly a fairly healthy expansion has come come our way this year as well um, in the in, in the way of a contract farming agreement and, and some of the grazing grazing licenses so you know we're expanding by a thousand acres uh, this year which is which is exciting time really yeah very good and you've obviously you know, you've obviously done very well with the uh, soil health side of things because you you were a finalist in the Soil Farmer of the Year awards, um, and you, along with some other contestants, decided to form the Green Farm Collective, which is a nature and carbon investment company. Why did you guys decide to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's myself and five other farmers that, that uh, I've got together and formed the Green Farm Collective. Um, we decided to do this because we're all, um, you know, the six of us, we're all on the same wavelength. We've all got the same goal, um, which is, you know, we want to improve soil health. We want to improve, the, leave the planet that we live on in a better place than, than, than when, we, when we started our life on the planet, I suppose. Um, but also, you know, six hands are better than one and um, we want to be able to um, learn and share ideas together um, and, and, and that will speed up the the rate of progression really um, and so yeah we set up the Green Farm Collective uh, to be able to trade carbon and biodiversity but then also to be able to form a community whereby we can all learn and we can all share ideas uh, we can all learn from each other's mistakes uh, and, and learn from those things that, that go that go well as well yeah um, so yeah that's what the green farm collective is all about as much as anything no it sounds great and when when you kind of talk about um you know nature investment what what is meant by that yeah so nature investment it's it's something that I think we'd probably all agree that um, we has comes comes as a benefit of farming in the way that we're farming. So, you know, here we're not farming, we're not using any insecticides. We're we're really focused on on our soil health, uh, and and everything stems from the soil. So the whole soil food web starts to thrive, and all the beasties that live in our soil start to thrive, and then that goes up the food chain. And you know we've got we've got four species of owls here. We, we've we've got barn owl chicks um, just just outside our house and owl box here. So we we know the whole system is working and it's working alongside producing high quality uh, nutrient dense food and a lot of it. So it's it's proof that yes, you know first and foremost we are food producers, um, but alongside that we can also ensure that nature thrives. And so that that story and that natural capital that we have on the farm, um, you know, that's that's all worth something. And actually, what we've learned through the Green Farm Collective is that private companies want to invest in that sort of thing and and help us to to ensure that you know we create these habitats and that we we ensure that nature can thrive alongside alongside farming. Um, so whether it be a pond restoration or whether it be uh, sponsoring you know some wild flowers to be planted or some trees to be planted or some hedges to be planted or anything like that um, you know it, it's we've discovered that there are customers out there who want to pay for that sort of a thing yeah and how does that kind of payment system work like how do you measure how much a certain um, you know, a certain activity or, um, you know, like pond restoration, for example, is, is worth to an investor? 
So, yeah, I mean, as far as a pond restoration or something like that goes, that is purely between the farmer and the investor, really, depending on the size of the uh, the project and what the investor wants out of it. You know, do they want to come and do, uh, you know, do they want five farm visits a year or, or, or anything like that? So it's very much on, a, on an individual basis. Um, however, if it's if it's something uh, like like a carbon deal with biodiversity attached, uh, um, then uh, you know we, we we have we have a pricing structure for that, and that is all quantified using Trinity AgTech's Sandy, um, which is a which is a, a carbon and biodiversity quantification tool. Um, and as far as we as the Green Farm Collective can work out, it's the most uh, legally watertight and accurate system for measuring all these things. Um, so we we use we use Sandy to, to quantify to quantify what we're doing there. We can also then obviously um, sell areas of either cover crops or uh, floristically enhanced margins or, or wildflower meadows. Um, you know, we can sell that by, by the hectare um, or even by the square metre if, if needs be. So that would have, say, you know, a floral margin. Would that have a certain value per square metre, for example, um, kind of across the board, or does the the farmer that's kind of selling that do they get to put a value on that? Yeah, no, we 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 we've, we've got a price across the board basically, and um, the first the first uh, areas um, have just been planted last week, I think, on Tim Parton's farm at Brood, um, and you know the the values that we're getting for these sorts of things. Um, we won't disclose the values. However, what we will say is that they make countryside stewardship um, look pathetic, basically. Interesting. Mm. Okay. And I'm and I would this be allowed alongside countryside stewardship, or does it have to be kind of separate? Um, allowed alongside it, yeah, but not to be double funded. Yeah. Okay. You know, the, the hope is that, you know, I'm currently in the countryside stewardship here and, and ours is Tim. And, um, but we, you know, the hope is to, to move away from, from all government funding if we can do uh, and, and just create, you know, create our own private markets. And, and again, that's part of the part of the, the reasoning behind the Green Farm Collective is we as, as farmers want to stand up and do something for farmers and have control of it. Yeah. Um, because you know we are in really uncertain times, and and none of us are happy to just sit back and wait and see what the government comes up with to, to bail us all out. Mm. Um, you know, let's take control of the situation for ourselves. Yeah, definitely. And it's I guess it's nice because you get much more sense of community as well when you're kind of working more closely with a, an actual customer rather than you know with countryside stewardship you're not really engaging Absolutely, with yeah. people. So and, you know, it's something that all farmers. Um, you know, we should be encouraged to do is to engage with our customers, uh, you know, and, and and let them understand where their food comes from and, and what farmers do for the environment. Because all farmers, you know, 99% of farmers do, you know, a lot of good for the, for the environment, the countryside and, and, you know, England's green and pleasant land that we live in is because of how, how the farmers keep it. So the more we the more we engage with, with our customers uh, and show them what we do, the better, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I I went into a school recently and, and and was talking to various ages of kids for the morning, and actually it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because mm -hmm. the questions that came from them and, and actually you know you come away from there thinking, well, yeah, you know, we've that's made a difference. That's made you know uh, the next generation of our customers understand a bit more about what we do. I think it's a really important, really important thing to be doing. Yeah, and then they'll probably go home and tell their parents all about it as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So with um, Biodiversity Net Gain, um, you're tied in for 30 years at a time, which is obviously quite off-putting for a lot of land managers. So with this system, how long would um, you know a farmer be tied into a contract with one of their customers for yeah i mean ours is completely nothing it's completely separate to biodiversity net gain yeah. um so you can uh, the the trades that we've done so far are purely on an annual basis 
Um, so you can, you know, repeat year on year on year. Um, obviously, if it's a pond restoration or, or hedge planting or something like that, then then that's that's a different thing. But if it's if it's for cover crops, for example, then that's just on an annual basis. Uh, and likewise, if it's if it's selling carbon with biodiversity credits attached, then that's you know on an annual basis as well. So, if I was a farmer that wanted to get involved, what would the process be? Yeah, so if you're a farmer wanting to get involved, then um, basically the the Green Farm Collective has a, a set of um, a set of rules, for want of a better word, that you know we we want any any future members to adhere to, and at the end of the day, they will be an ambassador for the Green Barn Collective brand and we you know we've all we've all got to uphold our values. Um so if you're a farmer who is who is farming in a similar way to to what we're doing and uh, you know you believe that that you but that you're that you're ticking all those boxes as it were, then you can uh, sign up to, to the Green Farm Collective online. Um and that there's £250 admin fee for doing that, uh, and and then yeah, the idea being that we we can quantify what we've got using using Sandy, um, uh, and then pull together our certainly our carbon uh, and biodiversity credits to be able to offer um, you know to to customers large you know, large scale, decent sized chunks of carbon for, for customers to be able to buy. Um, you know, we've got we've got customers wanting to buy five thousand tons of carbon. Well, um, you know, we can't we can't do that at the moment. Um, it, we just haven't got that amount to be able to sell. Um, so once we get some new members on board uh, and you know Sandy's quantified, then we we then can can crack on and do that. And what kind of customers are you working with? So uh, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. There's a really broad range of customers. Um, anyone from uh, marketing firms to window and door manufacturers oh, wow. to the the sports industry. Um, yeah, it's a, a, a vast array of, of customers out there who, who who are wanting to invest. It's it's really quite interesting. Really quite interesting. We will. We will be picky uh, as to who we sell to. We won't just sell to anyone. Um, we want to make sure that our customers are buying into us for the right reasons um, and that they fully understand what, what we're doing and why they're buying in buying into our products. Um, so we yeah we won't we won't sell to anyone just because they want to buy from us as it were. Yeah, and have they all come to you, kind of going out looking for this, or have you approached people or? Yeah, they they've all come to us um, through through various routes. Um, yeah, we as a bunch of six farmers, that is not where our expertise lies at all. Um, so uh, thankfully, we we sort of teamed up with a with a couple of other companies. Your Pact being being one of them, um, and we're working quite closely with these guys. Uh, you know who are who are pointing customers in our direction. Yeah, it just shows the appetite for for this kind of thing out there, doesn't it? It's been fascinating, actually, and I have to say that you know when we first went into this, carbon was the main focus, and and, and everyone really concentrates on carbon. Um, however, carbon, it's you know, it's pretty black and white. You you you, you quantify it, and you've got ten tons of carbon there to sell, and and. and and the price of carbon's 100 quid. Well, there you go. That's that done. The biodiversity side of things is far more interesting, and is it? You know, it's a, it's a far bigger market and far far more interesting market as far as we're concerned. Um, and and I certainly didn't see that coming when we when we started on this journey, sort of 18 months ago, I suppose. Yeah, I guess biodiversity is a lot more tangible. Like people can go to your farm, they can see the wildlife, they can see the the floral margins and things like that. Whereas carbon, it's you can't see it so you can't necessarily appreciate it exactly that yeah yeah you know and if someone invests in in biodiversity on this farm and and you get them out and you walk them through some wildflowers and and they see all the beasties flying around and um you know and then and then you know maybe you've got the bird ringers here as well and they've caught some some yellow hammers and some red data species birds and they can see you know they can actually see the difference that they're making to this planet then as you say that's a really really tangible thing yeah 
Yeah, no, it's great. I think what you guys have done is really good and well done. Oh, thank you, thank you, Alice. Yeah, it's uh, it's very early days yet, but um, yeah, it's uh, the more of us that can that can knock our heads together and, and get this thing moving forward, the better. If you'd like to hear more from Michael about training natural capital, he'll be speaking alongside a team of experts on the topic at both days of crop tech during the Maximising Natural Capital Revenue Opportunities seminars. And now for my final speaker, who is a self-confessed sceptic when it comes to such offsetting schemes, but of course very important to have that voice of reason when approaching such topics. I've got with me here Jeremy Moody, who is Secretary and Advisor at the Central Association for Agricultural Valuers. Jeremy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, We've had just now about the positives of trading natural capital but I'm sure you know like everything in life there are some quite important things to consider before jumping into it um so I just wanted to kind of get your take on what your advice would be to a landowner uh that you know they like the sound of this fairly new market yes I think the first thing in this is to be very clear and specific about what's actually being put on the table uh, and to understand then what are the terms that are being offered, what you're being required to do, for how long, with what penalties, and then, of course, for the price, how, what are you going to be paid? But I think it's not a matter of just talking about the very vague general concept of natural capital, which strictly, of course, means selling lamb and wheat just as much as it might mean selling water management or something. Uh, but it is what, it, what are the very precise commitments that you're being asked to enter into, What do they do to your land? How do they change your business? How do they change its tax status? How do they alter your ability to earn income? Does it suit what you want to do? Is it opposed to what you want to do? And then, of course, are you being paid a good enough price for it? Some of these agreements are very long term. Biodiversity net gain is to be 30 years. Nutrient neutrality, perhaps 120. Uh, That then binds your land for a very long term. Into, an un- into a completely unknown future. But if you're paid money that suits you and the terms suit you just as exactly in the same way, letting your farm, for, letting land on your farm for a solar farm is again a now a 30 or 40 year commitment, but people are being paid a price and terms that make it attractive to them. And I mean, 120 years, you just said there, that's, that's an incredibly long time to tie yourself into a contract, let alone, you know, the, the kind of 30-year BNG um, contracts that we talked about earlier. Do you think maybe, you know, shorter-term contracts are definitely a better option at this early stage? I think you should only enter into a contract that's as long as you can accept. Uh, and it was quite interesting in the House of Lords debates on this area of the Environment Bill, the government was determined to resist all pressures to go longer than 30 years because they feared that would then become unattractive to all except the most committed of landowners. Uh, The shorter the agreement, the more, for example, when your uh, milk purchaser comes to you and proposes that you do certain environmental things, it seems to me to be quite important that what you're committed to matches the length of your milk contract so that you don't wind up having forced your land into one use for a contract that might disappear in a few years' time. And I suppose with contract lengths as well, it very much depends on on um, whether you own the land or whether you're renting it. If you if you are renting it and it's a short-term contract, then it could be a potential option, but then you don't know where you stand with the landowner and whether they are entitled to any of that money because it is their land still? Well, there are a whole series of issues around this, and that would depend on what the tenancy agreement says, and as you say, how long your tenancy agreement is. Um, In the main, uh, as we're seeing already with the DEFRA agreements, uh, tenants can enter SFI with its short-term commitments that are consistent with farming, something that fundamentally changes the use of the land or is longer term, uh, can be much more difficult without good willing communication and positive agreement between the parties. But a separate point to make, and just thinking ahead about some of the discussion around carbon, if you agree to enter into an agreement to commit that you will provide a certain amount of carbon for somebody else's business, that commitment can follow you whether you control the land or not, depending on the terms of the agreement. 
and you could find that you've taken on that commitment, whatever then later happens to the land. So again, it's a question of being being careful and, and, and looking to the future. And indeed, one of the constraints I've seen in some discussions of this is not is also about how this might fetter the next generation. The present farmer may be happy to enter into something, but does this then limit the opportunities for children or grandchildren as they go into this? Equally, when children or grandchildren are happy to see these changes, that sometimes helps persuade a farmer to make the change. And do we know much about the tax implications for things like this? Because I, I spoke to a farmer a few weeks ago that um, they've entered into a kind of BMG um, in, with their local council and they and they said one of the main things to consider is potentially the tax implications. Yes, well, we know. I, I think we know a reasonable amount. It would be desirable for the government to support its ambitions in this area by a specific tax change, at least regarding inheritance tax. But taking tax as we understand it, the important thing is not to get distracted by the labels, not to think that this is about um, something very different. You're looking at the, the key tests, and here for most people this revolves around inheritance tax. Because if they get this wrong, that's 40% of their land value disappearing in tax on death. The key things are, is it in agriculture? And it is in business. And if it remains in agriculture, then it would remain available for agricultural property relief. And if it remains within their business, then it will help them in the balance as to whether they get business property relief. And both of those are obviously helpful. If they let a large part of their business away to somebody else to have on a tenancy, that prejudices their business property relief. If the land is changed in use so much that it ceases to be recognisably agriculture, then it drops out of agricultural property relief. So it's, it's a question of the facts on the ground. But if they lease some away, keep, keep some, then the question, of course, is have they still got a farmhouse for agricultural property relief? And that's an ancillary factor. Uh, there are then other tax considerations, but for most people, it boils down to the protection of long-run value in their land from inheritance tax. And the rules are there, but they will mean that the less there is change in land use, the more they're likely to retain the reliefs that are important to them. Right, OK. And on the whole, with um, you know trading natural capital, BNG or carbon or any of these things, what would your advice be? What approach would you suggest that landowners take to giving this a go, I suppose, or kind of looking into it more and thinking it might be an option for them? Firstly, know their own objectives, uh, because some owners have much greater willingness to accept environmental uses. It serves their longer-term view of where they are in terms of being of land ownership. Uh, others uh, may wish to preserve much greater freedom of action, freedom for later options, the ability to farm commercially, uh, and, and in ways they choose in all the changes in, in coming decades. Second, I think it comes back to this business of being very clear about what the offers are. This isn't just a great haze called natural capital. There are people who will come to buy specific things. And if it's biodiversity net gain, they will have been a developer. That developer has developed some land of a certain type, and they will want to improve other land of a certain type if they're coming to do this sort of deal. And if it's simply upgrading a pasture to so that it's species-rich meadow and surrounded by hedgerows, that land can still be grazed, it can still work, and it may, may lead you to have a useful sum of money, provided you can be bound for, you can accept being bound for, for 30 years. Uh, is the price good enough? Well, that's a matter to, to, to look at in the light of your, your other concerns. There are some... Uh, agreements that have been around which effectively see the farmer selling all benefits, whether it's carbon, whether it's um, biodiversity, uh, whether it's nutrient neutrality, whether it's water management. And that is a very significant control over the farmer's ability to farm. I think you would need to understand what are the penalties for breaching those commitments that you enter into. And if it all makes sense, then do it. 
Yeah, you just mentioned price there. Is the price good enough? I guess the concern is that, you know, payment rates could significantly increase in, say, five years time. You you tie yourself into a contract now. Um, and you, I guess you don't really know where the market's going to go with this. That, But of course, that's true whether you're selling wheat, Ford, or you're in any market, you, you, you take a price that you find acceptable on the day or, or you reject it. And, and people have to live, live with their decisions is, if you like, a rather hard answer on that one. But we are in unknown circumstances. Um, obviously, people may be looking at these in comparison with the DEFRA scheme or a scheme offered by one of the other UK governments. And those may have to be better priced to attract people. They will be looking at other changes that may happen over time. But there's also discussion around how far you can put schemes together, the question of additionality. And private markets are likely to be much more demanding that their money must buy some change that wouldn't otherwise happen. So we're seeing it now harder for private money in these markets to go into renewables or commercial forestry because those will happen now anyway in the marketplace. They, they, they float financially on their own. Uh, but other changes then can only require this sort of money to come in. But if some of it's already being paid for by a DEFRA scheme, then a private investor might look at this and say, well, why am I doing this? And I think, therefore, there's a bit of care around all of this. And, of course, that comes on to the question of other players in these areas and the very important and often missed role of the supply chain, the people who are purchasing your product, whether it's milk or it's grain or it's lamb, uh, what they might want in terms of showing that they are, they have a good, clean supply chain to show to their investors and lenders. And it's probably important to retain the freedom to have those farming contracts more than to do other deals if what you are at heart is a farmer. So what you're saying is you should be working with your suppliers more to help them kind of reach their uh, environmental many, goals rather than... Many, yes, many buyers are large corporations that are increasingly being looked to to show that not only their operations but their supply chain, the so-called Scope 3 assessment, is, for example, um, moving to net zero for carbon. And at that point, their investors may look to them, their lenders may look to them, and they will pass those commitments on up the supply chain to reach the farm. And we're seeing a little bit of this at the moment with Arla offering to pay maybe 7% more on milk price for farmers who can tick a sufficient number of environmental boxes. And a lot of those boxes are also very consistent with being more efficient, more profitable farmers. So there's a double win in that, a better price, well, triple win, better price, environmental gains and a more efficient business uh, that's that's well and good but if it's, it's it's having the freedom to be able to do that and understand how those pressures work and how you can respond to them i suppose if they're being paid extra by um you know whoever their contract is with that's brilliant but i suppose the worry is that they will make it um you know necessary for a farm to be doing these certain things in order for them to get that contract and then it kind of completely falls out of the control of the farmer. This is always the risk in all these areas that what starts as being a premium to encourage a few people to be better over time becomes the basic standard with other people who don't meet it either not being able to sell their produce or only being able to sell it at a discounted price. And that is one of the ways in which these markets could go. Yeah, I guess that's a whole other argument, but it's a concern for sure. Yes, and then can you find other markets for your produce? Uh, you know, so much depends about where you, where you as a person, where you as a farmer, as a business, consider your your future lies. Uh, if somebody comes to you, uh, for example, um, and this is nutrient neutrality, so this is where people are being. Uh, paid for some deals by a housing developer to deplete their own land of phosphates to enable the houses to go ahead. So that you, you, again, you get nutrient neutrality. 
And if, thinking of a case, you are a farmer who is committed to very low, very extensive conservation grazing, and that's what you want for your land, and somebody comes and offers you what looks a very large sum of money to do that extensive conservation grazing, then you may be very happy to accept a long-term agreement for that. However, if you are looking, well, I might want to plough that land and list out and grow crops, I might want to do something else with it altogether, um, some diversification or something else with it, then if you take that large sum of money over a long period of time, it could actually look like quite a small sum of money for each year and be less than the other values that you could hope to obtain. And so it's, it, it's who you are and where you want to be will be one of the factors in, 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 in these markets. Yeah, and that'll be very dependent on each individual business. Absolutely. And then on to carbon, obviously, um, that is that falls under the natural capital hat. Um, what what do you, are your thoughts on farmers, you know, looking at trading carbon? Because that's all we're hearing about at the moment is carbon. I know everybody wants to talk about carbon, and I'm going to suggest that it is in large measure displacement activity and, 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 and a distraction. Agriculture produces about 8 or 10% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions, of about half a percent of GDP. We have a very big carbon issue to sort out for ourselves by looking as best we can to reduce emissions and as best we can to sequester our own carbon to make our own businesses uh, as, net, as near net zero as possible. And that won't always be, be feasible f- for many people. But nonetheless, we're going to be expected to, whether by the supply chain or by government or by society, we're going to be expected to go down those roads. Uh, so we overestimate at this point what we can do for other people because we underestimate what we're going to have to do for ourselves. Carbon is important it is because of its role in greenhouse gas emissions and so climate change. But the values available to farmers are really terribly low for the constraint on their business. And my concern is that farmers may be lured into early deals now in these barely formed markets where the prices available to us are low, give away to somebody else, permanently commit themselves, because carbon's life is a century, give them a, commit themselves to ensuring an offset for that carbon for somebody else's business that gets the benefit. And then when the farm needs to show how it's going to net zero, all they're left with is the harder stuff to do. And so I don't really see the attraction in this for people um, trading it away. I see it as very important to be looking at managing the carbon budget on the farm and reducing emissions and, and the net, the net the, the moving towards net zero. But trading it away seems to me to compromise that. There may be circumstances where it's right. It may be that it gives very good publicity and advertising and promotion for another activity altogether on the farm. Uh, it may be that you wish to give up farming anyway, at which point then the, 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 these arrangements become more, perhaps more feasible. But I'm rather afraid that we will see quite a number of people in these early deals look back with seller's remorse on what they might have done, the, the really quite low, low values in comparison with what they have bound themselves to. And we have seen uh, now as we're gaining experience from some of the, the early steps in this, we're seeing the risks and we're seeing for there's recently been a study of the Californian offsetting scheme, which has shown that in the first seven years of the scheme, they've burned all the, all the available reserved carbon that was there for a century. Uh, one disease would take out all the buffer there for a disease. And, of course, commercial failure coming in as part of this. And so it needs much higher levels of, if you like, insurance or um, carbon held back to be able to fulfill the guarantee that you are making when you're offsetting. You're making a, a guarantee to the other company that they, you are assuring that they will have the benefit of your carbon. Uh, the risks are larger and bigger, the value lower, and the commitments harder than I think most people appreciate. Yeah, okay. So one to just hold back on until, well... Of the three markets we've touched on, uh, carbon seems to me that it's one where the farmer really should look after themselves first. Biodiversity, net gain, and nutrient neutrality have the capacity to offer interesting value. 
that are both are likely to be relatively small markets. Our working guess at the moment is that biodiversity net gain might be an annual market of four or 5,000 hectares a year, say 10,000 acres a year, give or take the development cycle and the rest of it. Uh, so value related to the fact that it enables a planning permission to be implemented, but at a relatively small scale. And nutrient neutrality is very much a local market because it's trying to resolve things in a particular catchment, whether whether it's the Y or the Tybee or um, the Star or whatever it might be. And again, useful values, but, but again, l limited potential. I think the real message I'd want to give farmers is that they, the, the thing they should really do is look to ensure they have the best possible business. If they sort the business, and whether that's actually in the end letting it to somebody else who is a better farmer to be able to pay them a good rent, or it's improving the, improving the business in their own hands, finding the way to be efficient and profitable, that, that's, the, that's the bedrock on which you then look at these other things. There's a bit of a bias at the moment in looking at DEFRA schemes or these new markets to say, oh, there's salvation there, it will make it will make good. If you've got a poor business at the bottom of it, you may simply wind up doing something else poorly as well and live to regret it. Yeah. Okay. That seems like the perfect place to end. Very I good advice. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for today, but I hope this episode gave you more clarity on the topic and there will be plenty more opportunity to find out more about it at CropTech. So I hope to see you there.